Hey, welcome to the Spring Hills Podcast. Today, I'm going to be sharing with you the conversation between Pastor Brett and Elisa Childers that happened this weekend during our weekend services. So Elisa came and spoke at our women's conference, and then she stuck around, and Brett interviewed her on the stage for our weekend services. Elisa is an author and a podcaster. She used to be in a band called Zoe Girl, a very popular Christian band from, uh, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. And uh, now, like I said, podcaster and author. So Pastor Brett interviewed her this weekend. Can't wait for you to hear the conversation. So go ahead and check it out. All right. Well, how are you guys doing? Good. Good to see you this morning. This is Elisa and uh, Childers. She's been the women's speaker at our women's conference here at the church. How many of you have been part of that? Okay. A lot of you. Good. And uh, we asked her before she came if she would stick around and share some of the things with the church that she shared with uh, the women at the women's conference. And, and uh, we're just glad to have you. Yeah, it's really? great to be with you all. It's great to have her. Her dad, Chuck Gerard, so this will come back to some of you perhaps, was part of the band Love Song uh, that was really the first rock, Christian rock band uh, to hit America, Love Song. And first Christian album I ever bought was Love Song, and, uh, but it was her dad. And also, um, Elisa traveled with the group Zoe Girl. You remember the group Zoe Girl, some of you? Yes, okay. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I've given a few things, but yeah, tell us a little bit more about you. Yeah, well, as you mentioned, I grew up kind of in a musical home. My dad was a traveling musician. Obviously, he, after Love Song ended, he went into a solo ministry, and so I just grew up in that environment. He was a, a first-generation Christian. My mom had been raised in the church, but my dad wasn't. He was a hippie who was searching for God, and he tried to find God through Eastern mysticism, Buddhism, Hinduism, LSD, the Arantia book, you name it. <laughs> and he recalls uh, going to this little church that everybody said, oh, you're going to find God in this church, and he heard the gospel and gave his life to Christ. And so I was raised uh, in an environment where I, I just, I, it was a very genuine Christianity. The Christians that, that I knew were generally good people, and they loved God, and they, they loved the word, and, and I have loved Jesus my whole life. I, I don't even remember a time before I loved Jesus. And so, uh, yeah, you mentioned I've kind of followed in his footsteps, spent some time in the group Zoe Girl, and then today I, I have a, an apologetics blog and podcast, and apologetics, just if you're wondering what that word is, it doesn't mean we're apologizing for anything. It just means giving reasons for why Christianity is true. And so I have now written a book, and I never would have dreamed that for myself, but that's what I do today. And she's written a great book called Another Gospel? Question mark. Came out in 2020, I guess. Huh? Was that 2020? Um, I enjoyed reading the book, and uh, it's uh, very. It uh, challenges you to have a reason for the faith that you have. I mean, if somebody said to you, "Why do you believe what you believe, and what do you believe?" Could you give a response to that? Now, you you grow up. So you grew up in a Christian home. You're taught things, Bible stories. You've always, you always believed them. Uh, you kind of held them dear to your heart as God's word, and you've always believed that. Then you end up in a church with a progressive pastor, all right, a progressive pastor, um, and uh, who really starts to teach progressive Christianity, and it really ends up sort of unraveling for you and challenging everything you ever believed. Tell us a little bit about that experience. 
So after Zoe Girl came off the road, by this point we were all married and starting to have babies. So I, I was married with a new baby and coming off the, while I was on the road, I honestly didn't really have a church I was that connected with. We were gone every Sunday and uh, you know, I regret that, but, but we didn't. So when we came off the road, we were trying to find a church and we went to one church for a while, but then we found this church that was just like home to us. We, we felt so connected to the people there. My husband and I both really loved the intellectual approach to the sermons that the pastor had. We hadn't ever been exposed to anything like that. And we were just home, we loved it. And so after about eight months of attending there, the pastor invited me to be a part of a small group and it, he described it as a small study and discussion group that would be like going to seminary. The class was supposed to last four years. And in this class, he said, you know, we're gonna dig into the intellectual side of our faith. And that sounded really exciting to me because like you mentioned, I always knew that I believed, but I didn't know really why I believed. Um, all, other than, you know, if somebody would have asked me as a kid, why do you believe the Bible is God's word? I would have been like, well, duh, because it is, you know, <laughs> something like that. But I wanted to be able to give these intellectual reasons. And so I was very excited. But in one of the first classes, the pastor basically told us, you know, that he was an agnostic. He said, I'm, I'm a hopeful agnostic. And so he didn't know what he believed about God and Jesus. And you know, I, when I first heard that, of course I was like, what, a pastor? But then I thought, oh, I'm just being judgmental. Don't be judgmental, hear him out. But over the course of this class, essentially, he deconstructed, he dismantled and intellectually explained away all the beliefs, virtually all the beliefs that I had held so dear ever since I was a child, and especially this right here. So much time was spent basically trying to disprove the reliability of the Bible in every way from how we got the Bible to whether or not it even tells the truth. And um, it really threw me into a dark night of the soul where my own faith was challenged so deeply that it, it just threw me into a major faith crisis at that point. And your book um, was really a six, seven year deep dive into the questions that you really couldn't answer about the Bible, is that the word of God and, and the so-called so errors that are in the Bible and different things like that you dug in and, and uh, have come to a place now where you have really, you know, grown in your faith, your, the assurance of the scriptures being the word of God, of Jesus being the son of God, of eternal life through him has really taken a huge turn. And some people, they grow up in Christian homes. You see this all the time where... Uh, a kid grows up in a Christian home, they go to church, they part of the youth group, um, all of that. Then they go off to college, and after their first, second semester home, uh, it's like they don't believe anymore, they've got huge questions, they have a lot of doubt, and it's like they never established the reason why they believed what they were taught in the church. Uh, and in some cases, they had questions in their youth group, but they were sort of put down. Um, Talk about that a little bit, you know, the, the idea of having doubts, healthy doubts versus unhealthy doubts, and the, how the church should respond to that. Growing up, I thought that if I doubted something about what I believed about God, that that was evidence that I had weak faith. And I think that's because I had a faulty understanding of what biblical faith is. I think I thought it was something you muster up, it's something that you kind of wield or, or, or something along those lines. But if you really think about what doubt is, faith and doubt are not opposites, they actually work together. 
And I think that healthy doubt, and what I would describe as healthy doubt, would be asking questions because you actually want the answers, not just asking questions because you're looking for justification for what you've already kind of decided is either untrue or maybe justification for unbelief. But healthy doubt, if you really think about it, faith and doubt go together because you can't doubt something that you don't believe. You believe it and then you doubt it. And I think that there can be a really healthy way to go about that. In fact, I think that a truly mature Christian faith will face the doubts and say, okay, I have this question. I'm going to do some digging. I'm going to investigate what the truth is. And if you're seeking truth, uh, I think it will actually help grow your faith and mature your faith. And so, so I think that churches could possibly do a lot better in general when people have, especially young people in this entirely skeptical culture we're living in with social media where there's so much information at our fingertips. You know, if a, if a kid has a question for us to say, wow, that's great. I'm so glad you're asking questions. Let's investigate this together. And even as a part of active discipleship to help people walk through their doubts, um, I, I think that churches can, can do better. And I would love to see more churches be able to create environments where people can do that. You know, um, progressive Christianity, have you heard of it? Progressive Christianity. This is a movement now uh, that is happening in our culture. And there are progressive pastors now and progressive churches. And this, this is quite new. I mean, it's not new in the sense of what progressive Christianity teaches or what progressive Christianity believes. That's not new. It's just a remix of things that uh, have always been around since really the first, second century. Um, but it's, um, it's, we're noti I'm noticing on um, people I follow on Instagram and some people that used to be Christians in the, you know, we'd say an evangelical Christian or somebody who believed in the historic Christian faith is now up to date and progressive. And I think you need to be aware of this to be able to spot it in a, in a church, to be able to spot it in what's happening to the youth and maybe even some of the beliefs that you have that uh, have moved away from uh, what we have always believed this historic Christianity into the progressive Christianity. So I want you to talk about the tenets, if you will, the tenets. What is progressive Christianity that is really hitting our culture right now? Well, several years after my husband and I left the church that I was just talking about with the agnostic pastor, they completely rebranded themselves. They took down the apostles and Nicene creeds from their website. They wrote a new creed, put that up, and then they called themselves a progressive Christian community. And although that was the first time I'd heard that phrase, I kind of instinctively knew what it meant because of the class that I had been in. But this was years after I had already studied and kind of reconstructed my own faith. But I decided to go on a two-year quest to just read all the progressive books I could, listen to their podcast, try to figure out what this movement is and how it's defined. And the tough thing about progressive Christianity is that it's very difficult to define because it's very fluid, it's constantly changing, and there's a broad spectrum of beliefs that fall under the umbrella of progressive Christianity. But as I began to read their books, while there's a broad spectrum of beliefs regarding what they affirm in, in like the affirmative sense, they're a lot more united about what they deny. And so in, in progressive Christianity, you might have one progressive Christian that believes Jesus was resurrected. You might have another that doesn't believe that. And they can be in unity together because it's really not about that. It's not about what you affirm. Uh, so in progressive Christianity, a helpful way to think about it, just regarding what it actually is, is it's a movement of people who 
mostly grew up in the evangelical church who are rethinking, redefining, and often rejecting some of the core historic doctrines of the faith. And we can look at it this way as well. Historically speaking, Christians have looked back to the people who walked with Jesus, the people who knew him in real life. These are the people who wrote our New Testament. These are the people that have the highest authority to tell us what Christianity is. These are the people that have the highest authority to tell us how we should live as Christians and to give us uh, you know, instruction according to God's word. Whereas in progressive Christianity, those early believers, the ones closest to Jesus who knew him, they represent Christianity in its infancy, more like a baby that's just learning to crawl before it walks. And so now you'll hear things like in progressive Christianity, we come to a higher and wiser view of God. So we can look back at what the apostle Paul wrote and we can disagree with Paul because Paul just didn't know as much as we know now. He had biases and prejudices, things that, that tainted the way he saw the world. And, and now that we've progressed into a, a, a higher and more mature view of God, we can kind of make some of those corrections along the way. So I think that would probably be the best way to think about how to define it and characterize what it is. Yeah, if you, if you, and you wrote about it in your book, Gnosticism, which was a first century heresy, and Gnosticism means knowledge, right? The Gnostics had knowledge. And uh, part, of the, part of the heresy in the first century church to which the book of Colossians is largely... Um, written by the apostle to deal with Gnosticism is we know a little bit more, see? And, and this is, we, we know beyond the scriptures or beyond the apostles or beyond what's written, uh, we have a higher knowledge and you just need it. And if you, if you follow us, then you'll get that uh, higher learning. So again, Gnosticism goes back to uh, the first century church and what it was dealing with. And it's just sort of a remix now. Progressive sounds like such a good word, though, doesn't it? We all want to progress. And uh, so, but we were getting away from, we're getting away from the authority, isn't that? I mean, it's the authority of Scripture. If we, if we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, not the word of man. I mean, I would assume the progressive church looks at the Bible as that's just the Apostle Paul or that's just Jeremiah and uh, that's not truly the breathed out word of God, then they can, they can go at it. But we, we understand and know that the scriptures are the inspired word of God. And that it, it was laid down for us as, as written what actually happened in teaching. And so we go back to this. But they go beyond it. And then once you get beyond the scriptures, I mean, you can say about anything you want, right? Yeah, and, and that's really a good point to bring out is that in progressive Christianity, so much of it is built upon their view of the Bible. In progressive Christianity, they're going to view the Bible as a human book written about God rather than God's word to humans. So if they look back at maybe an Old Testament prophet that told Israel, you know, Yahweh says, go do X, Y, Z. In the progressive mindset, they'll say, well, that wasn't necessarily God talking. That was just that guy's opinion of what he thought God might do in that situation. So you can see the implications this would have for the Bible actually being our authority. If you think that it's a book that humans wrote about God, it certainly isn't going to be authoritative for your life. And I love the point you brought up about progress because, yeah, we all want to progress, right? We want to be progressive because it sounds like a positive thing. But, I mean, it's actually a pretty neutral word. I could progress toward falling off the front of the stage and breaking my nose, and that it wouldn't be a good kind of progress. So we want to progress in our maturity, in our knowledge of the eternal truths of God's word. But those eternal truths themselves don't progress. They don't change. 
Yeah, as God doesn't change, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So I, um, you think about our culture, the way it is, and how um, the movement of the culture is towards there are no absolute truths. There's just your truth and my truth, but let's not talk about absolutes. Absolutes. There's the whole LGBTQ plus uh, emphasis in the culture, which is, you know, just live out your identity, be whoever you think you are. And some of these things, some of the racism emphasis in the culture, the critical race theory, all that sort of that's permeating in the culture. And then you, you go to a progressive church and they're trying to address those things. Um, uh, speak a little bit to the condition of the culture and how the culture, the way it is right now, is vulnerable to a church like that um, and some of their misunderstandings, perhaps, of the scriptures in that regard. Yeah, that's a good question because in progressive Christianity, the interesting uh, sort of defining principle is that morally speaking, wherever culture is at, like you mentioned with, you know, what they're considering to be a redefinition of the word justice or the critical race theory that we see or the, the redefinition of sexuality, the progressive church is going to be right in line with wherever culture is at on those things. And so you can see why that would be attractive for someone who grew up in the church and they, they think, well, I don't want to be considered to, to be unloving or bigoted by the culture so I can still have Jesus and yet affirm all this other stuff. And, and I, I, have, I have, you know, compassion for that because I can imagine, especially for young people who are living under such pressure to capitulate to culture, especially when it comes to issues like gender and sexuality, to just be able to kind of have my cake and eat it too. And that's what you're going to find in the progressive church is that it's very much going to flow with culture as far as the changing view of morality. And, um, and, and you know, if, if we look out at some of the best-selling books over the past several years, they're very me-centered. They're very much make yourself the the top priority. Put yourself first. Follow your heart. You're perfect just as you are. You're in control of your own destiny. You need to follow your dreams and make this happen for you. Crush those career goals. Get that mansion. Own that boat. And everything that we see in culture is so focused on me. And yet the Christian gospel is kind of the opposite. The, the Christian gospel actually says, you know what? You're not perfect as you are. Yes, you're made in the image and likeness of God, which makes you inherently valuable and you have dignity and worth. But we've all distorted that image in some way with this thing called sin. So actually, kind of by nature, you're broken. By nature, the Bible even uses really strong language, like you're a, you're a child of wrath. You're an enemy of God before you put faith in Jesus. And so you can see why, like, that's a much harder message. That's a harder sell. You know, you're not going to get a Netflix <laughs> special with, I am broken, you know. <laughs> well, you have, so as Christians, we have c complete compassion and love for those who struggle with any of those areas. We don't want to be racist. We want to, we want to love people. They have a, if they're in the gay lifestyle or they, wherever they're at, we want to love them. And uh, we certainly don't want to be a, a church that thinks we're better than other people. I think the, the issue is how do we address those things, number one, and how do we go about helping people who are going through these things or struggling with these things. So it, it really gets down to a worldview. It's like, so talk about the progressive Christian or the progressive church's worldview to solving the problems that are in the culture and then the biblical worldview. How's that for... Uh... Yeah, that's a big one. <laughs> 
Well, let's take the race issue, okay? So you mentioned critical race theory, which uh, if you're not familiar with that term, it's essentially, it, it, it's, it goes all the way back to germ, a German academic thing. Um, it's the Frankfurt School, and it was basically originally brought about to look at laws and how to equalize things when it comes to laws. But the way that it's playing itself out on the street level and the practical level in culture, I mean, you've all seen this on social media, where it makes every interaction always and everywhere only and mostly about race. And so it divides people into classes. You're either oppressed or you're an oppressor. There's no middle ground. You're not seen as an individual. You're seen according to whatever group you're assigned as far as that goes. Uh, but this is, this is completely anti-biblical because the Bible teaches, as I mentioned, every, there, there are no races. There's one race, according to the Bible. There's different ethnicities. There's different ethnic backgrounds. But we are one blood, according to the Bible. And yes, there may be individual situations. If, if there is someone who has oppressed another person, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about that and there needs to be repentance and, and things done. But when you're only viewed as, when you're expected to repent for something people in, you know, that you're associated with may or may not have even done, um, this creates an incredible amount of division between the body of Christ and it's not holy and it's not godly because the Bible uh, teaches that when we're in Christ, we're family. So all different, I mean, we see in Revelation, all tongues, tribes, and nations are going to be around the throne worshiping God. And we can't be looking at each other like just because of the amount of melanin that you have in your skin, that you owe me something or that I owe you something. Um, that's very divisive and it doesn't allow us to really live in the type of unity that the Bible talks about. Whereas in progressive Christianity, they're going to jump right on that. And so, um, in fact, I, it's very interesting. I just received a comment on my Facebook page two days ago where I, I shared the gospel in a, in a post or something and this woman came on and basically said that I am maintaining white supremacy by preaching the gospel. I mean, th these are the implications. We have to understand this. There's a belief in the progressive church that to talk about the blood of Jesus and, the, and repentance and forgiveness, this is promoting, uh, in their view, this is something white people came up with, which is so ridiculous because some of the biggest framers of the Trinity and of, of some of our core base doctrines we're Africans. You know, we, we have Augustine and Athanasius. These, these uh, uh, some of our great martyrs were from North Africa. So it's, it's really like you have to untie some of those knots. But it's, it's seeped in so deeply that they can't separate the gospel from what they would even consider hierarchy and oppression. It's a very difficult battle right now. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so to be able to be a church that's compassionate and loving towards wherever people are at. And I mean, we say here at our church, you know, everybody's welcome to come. I mean, obviously. And, uh, but then you, you begin to present God's um, design of things. And also the, we start to call certain things sin, all right? I mean, in the progressive church, we don't talk about sin. Um, it's always kind of regarded as a negative thing. Um, but talk about sin a little bit and um, how God's, God's compassion is to help people out of the destructive nature of sin. But it's, it, it's becoming more and more difficult to talk about because now you're a racist or you're a bigot or you're, you think you're better than other people. And the solution in the gospel to where people are at in their problems in the scripture, the solution is the gospel, which is different than the solution for the progressive church. Well, and, and part of that's based on a different definition of something like racism. So racism classically meant 
a, a prejudice or a bias that one person will hold in their heart toward another person based on their ethnic background or the color of their skin. That's not what people mean now. When they say the word racism, the, the definition has changed. It means having that prejudice, but plus power. So even if you're in a group, even if you don't have personal prejudice against another group, if you're in a particular oppressor class, you are a racist because that's what how racism has been redefined. Just because, frankly, this is what's so crazy about it. You're considered a racist if you have a certain sin, skin color which is inherently racist. Right. You right. know? Um, but, but now I forget the question you asked me. Yeah, I'm I just thinking... <laughs> I'm thinking of the solution to oh, the, the solution. problems so, in, yeah. in the gospel, right. which we have in scripture, as opposed to their gospel, right. which is another gospel or no gospel. Exactly. So if you, if, even through that lens of that, uh, of that, the critical race theory and stuff, the solution is to tear down systems and make sure everything, everybody has the exact same outcome. That's the progressive answer. Whereas the, the gospel's answer is everybody needs to repent. If you're a racist, repent, yes. right? Repent. And we would also want to advocate for laws that would make equal opportunities for people, uh, you know, as, as Christians. But the biblical answer would be repentance and the gospel, essentially uniting people together to work together. Whereas the secular answer keeps people pitted against each other because the, 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 the progressive and the secular answer for that, the goal is not unity. The goal is not to unify. The goal is to continue to perpetuate this idea that oppressor and oppressed can, it never is gonna be solved. And so it's just this endless works. It's a works-based gospel. Yes. What about sexuality? That's obviously huge in our culture. And um, as I say, you know, the scripture presents this design of God and we all fall short to your the way you describe it, we're all broken, all right? We're all broken, and uh, we're broken in different ways. Um, but to be able to present as believers in Jesus and believing God's word and the design that God has, being able to present that to somebody uh, in love and in grace, um, while at the same time upholding God's design, that's a challenging sort of thing. But why don't you address that? Just the uh, sexuality issues that are in our culture and how can we as believers just lovingly present the truth to them? Yeah, we're not being controversial at all today, are no, we? No, we're, we're not. Just, like, easy this breezy. This one's online too. <laughs> Welcome online. Yes. Um, <laughs> None of what... <laughs> oh, okay. I'm just asking the questions. I don't know, I know. what you're going to say. I don't know what I'm saying. I'm just going in all places. <laughs> so, yeah, the sexuality issue is a huge issue right now. And I think that, you know, most people who think about, in fact, they, they did a study. They know that they interviewed uh, American young people. And I can't remember the exact number, so I'm not going to, but it's very high. It's like 70 or 80% of American young people, when you say the word Christian, the first thing that comes to their mind is anti-gay. So there's already this, this perception that Christians are homophobic, that we're hateful toward people who are gay or who experience same-sex attraction. So I think that for the church, you, you know, you mentioned how do we lovingly communicate this? I think we need to take a few steps back. This is what apologetics does. Apologetics is not the gospel, but it can hopefully clear some intellectual obstacles that stand in front of the gospel. We need to do the same when it comes to sexuality. 
There is the truth about the way God, God created sex. He created it for a certain function and in a certain purpose. It's sacred, it's valuable. Therefore you protect things that are valuable and sacred. So he put guardrails around sex. Um, but before we even get to that, I think we have to back up a little bit because in our culture, uh, young people especially are coming to the sexuality conversation having already been discipled by YouTube and by their schools and by uh, media and music to believe that what you're attracted to, who you love, what your proclivities and orientations are is what your identity is. And I think that's where we have to start. Because the Christian message is that, you know, I, I'm married, but my identity is not heterosexual woman. That's not my identity. My identity is Christ follower, and I need to know who I am in Christ. I think we have to start there, because if you start with, well, here's what God calls a sin, what they're hearing is, you're calling me as a person. Hmm. They have, they ha you, you, we have to help people understand that your sexuality is not your identity. And I think that's a good starting place. And from there, we, we listen, every Christian has to, as my friend Hilary Ferrer of Mom Bear Apologetics says, has to pick up our sexual cross, every single one of us. When, when we give our lives to Jesus, we are dying to ourselves. And that means we are dying to our we all have orientations. We all have uh, things that we're geared toward, that, that we're, um, you know, tempted toward. But Jesus asks the same of all of us. I, I know friends who are 40 years old and they're unmarried. They have to pick up that sexual cross every day. There are people in marriages where it's, it's not what they thought it was going to be. They have to pick up those sexual crosses every day. I have many same-sex attracted friends who, who still experience that same-sex attraction, but they pick up that cross every day and they live in obedience to Jesus. And you know what? They have more joy and, and peace in their lives than I think even I do. And it, it's hard, but we all have to live for Christ. In fact, Sam Elberry is a pastor from the UK who experiences same-sex attraction. And in his book, he said, you know, people ask me, don't you have to give up so much more for the gospel because he has to pick up that sexual cross? And he says, if you're asking that, I wonder if you really know the gospel. Because Jesus asks the same of all of us. We have to deny ourselves pick up our cross, which is an instrument of death, and follow Jesus. And so, yes, God created sex for a certain function. There's guardrails around it. And, uh, but, but that applies to all of us. And, and that's the thing, I think, in progressive Christianity yeah. that's so getting redefined. Yeah, so as, as Christians who believe the Word of God, we would say that the happier life, if you will, or the, the uh, life that's going to be uh, an abundant life is one that's lived uh, according to God's design. And if you're married, you don't commit adultery because that's going against God's design. And if you do, there's pain with it. If you're single, you don't, you don't sleep around or go to bars and, and, um, because, and hang out with people or do one-night stands. Because if you do, it's going to shred your soul. It's, it's, it's a belief that God's design is best. Now, it doesn't always mean that temptation is easy and there's no problem. Um, but I think that's one big difference is we believe God's word is true. We believe that what God has said is coming from his goodness and his love. And, um, but it's going, to take, it's going to take a relationship with him, a, a new birth, a new life, in order for all those things to really take place. 
place. Now, one of the things you talk about in your book and also the title is good. Another gospel question mark is the gospel itself. All right. And the, the good news, which I preach the gospel. I'm a I'm a minister of the gospel. All right. I preach the gospel. Let's talk about what is the gospel uh, in scripture and what is the gospel according to the progressive Christianity? Two different things, two different gospels. It's completely two different gospels. That's what I argue in my book. I, I actually argue that progressive Christianity, it's not just a group of Christians who have changed their mind on some social issues or, or maybe leaning a little different way politically. This is theologically entirely a different religion. It has a different God, a different Jesus, and a different message of good news. And so if we look at the, the Christian gospel, and it's just most bare bones form as the narrative arc of God's redemptive acts throughout history, right? It's the proclamation of the good news. And what is the good news? Well, it's a story. So it starts with creation. Uh, God creates Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's good. He gives them freedom because we all know love can't exist without freedom. If he just programmed a couple of robots to love him, it wouldn't be real love. So he had to give them the opportunity to choose otherwise for love to be possible, and God is love. And so somehow in his sovereignty, he provided a way for them to have free will. They chose to rebel against him. And according to scripture, uh, that introduced sin and death into the world. And then that sin nature was passed down to their children, passed down to their children, and finally down to us. Well, this creates a problem because because uh, God's holy, and that means he can't have any unity with sin. So that means we're separated from God because of our sin. But then God incarnates into, steps into his creation. Jesus lives a perfectly sinless life, dies in our place, is crucified as a sacrifice to take what we deserve he got, essentially, so that those who put trust in him can be with him forever and eternally with no more tears and no more pain. And then for those who don't want God, they'll get what they want too. They'll, they'll be separated from God in a place called hell for eternity. And so that's probably just the bare bones flyover of, of the Christian gospel. Progressive Christianity denies every single point. I mentioned earlier, they're very united in what they deny. Uh, they don't believe that, well, first of all, they don't even believe Adam and Eve were real people. And so you don't have the fall introducing sin and death into the world and being passed down. They don't believe your sin separates you from God. They think all you need to do is just realize your belovedness, realize that inherent divinity that's already in you, that unity with God that you already have. If you're separated from God, it's just in your own mind. Well, then you can imagine what this would imply for the cross. The cross is viewed as a, a horrific idea, you know, that God the Father would require the blood sacrifice of his son. This turns God into an abuser. And, and so we don't, you know, in progressive Christianity, let's say we couldn't worship a God that would do that. And, uh, you know, the resurrection of Jesus, I may have missed that on the first, first round. That's important. That's the key. Mm-hmm. A resurrection of Jesus. Um, you know, take it or leave it in progressive Christianity. And then, largely speaking, most progressive Christians do not believe in hell. Again, they're going to affirm a whole bunch of different things about what they think is actually going to happen. But what they know is not going to happen, there's not a place of punishment called hell in progressive Christianity. So it's all going to be okay. And, and you can see why this loosens the reins as far as sin is concerned. They're not all that concerned with, you know, who you're sleeping with or that, as long as you're advocating for those social justice causes. And, and that would be why I actually, my book, call it a works-based gospel. Yeah. Wow. Um, so in your, in your book, you talk about the parable of the wheat and the tares growing up together in the church. Uh, Jesus said that there will be wheat and there'll be tares, um, as part of the church, all right? The wheat would represent those who are true 
believers who have come to Jesus as their Savior, experienced the forgiveness of God, who really believe that they're separated from God and can only be reconciled to God through the cross. That's the wheat to those who are believers. And then the tares are those in the church who haven't come to that place. They don't believe that, or maybe they're progressive in their own mind and sort of resist the idea of a holy God or judgment or wrath or all that kind of thing. Um, so Jesus said there'd be wheat and tares in the church and that uh, there at the end, when he comes, the angels go out and separate the wheat from the tares. The wheat come in to God's barn, eternal life, the tares are, are burned. All right, so in our church right now, um, don't look around, but we have wheat and tares here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wheat and tares, which means, here's a scary thought, everybody. Um, there are people that are Christians here who've come to know Jesus, and you have, yeah, all right, even the babies, <laughs> amen. Uh, we have people that are, are on their way to heaven, you know? And then we have people that are not. And you might be a tear and not know you're a tear. I mean, that, that to me is one of the most frightening things. I know not everybody here is a, is a born-again Christian. I know that. Um, but you may not know that. You may not know that. How can they know if they're really a Christian according to the gospel, according to the, the word of God as we understand it? Because I don't, too many, I don't know too many people that don't want to go to heaven. Sounds like good. Sounds good. Yeah. Um, but some are just assuming maybe because they show up at church or because they, you know, they help the babies in the nursery uh, that they are <laughs> true Christians. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you brought up the, you, you just said something very interesting. You said, you know, they want to go to heaven. And I think that's an interesting point because that's, that's what I would ask myself. Do you though? Like, do yeah, you want to go well, to heaven? Because if you hate God now and you don't want God in this life, if you don't want to submit to his rule in this life, do you really want to do that for eternity? I mean, that's, that's kind of something. Sing to him and yeah, worship like, him. Yeah, like I, I kind of push back on that a little bit sometimes. Yeah. I'm like, what do you think heaven is and what do you think hell is? Because I think a lot of people are like, oh, why would God not let me into heaven? And like, do you really want to go there? Because you don't want him now. And it's just an interesting way, you know, to, to think mm. about it. But um, what did you ask me again? I'm just like losing the question. Wait till the 1115 oh service. Gosh. Oh, man, we'll be we're all over be the like, place. Yeah. I mean, I, I want, if wheat and tares oh, grow how together. How do we know we're Christians? How do you know? Yeah. I mean, yes. are you interested? Yes. Okay. okay. Thank you. Retract. Okay. If, I just want to reassure you out there, if you are worried about that, there's a really good chance you probably are a Christian because you wouldn't be worried about it if you hadn't actually put faith in Jesus. Um, but I, I like to talk about it in this way. So there are certain things you'd have to be aware of, certain things you'd have to believe and know in order to be a Christian. You'd have to know you're a sinner. And these are very basic things. Like we're not even getting into the age of the earth or you know, speaking in tongues or anything. I'm just talking about really basic things. Do you know you're a sinner? Do you know that you need a savior? Do you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Uh, do you believe that you can't earn it? It's not something you can, you can work towards. You can do all the good works in the world. It'll never be enough. Uh, do, you, do you believe, you'd have to at least implicitly understand that you're not committing your life to a pantheon of multiple gods, you know, that you'd have to know God is one, that Jesus is God, that he was human. This isn't a long list. 
but you'd have to believe Jesus was raised from the dead and that he's coming again and uh, that, that you're saved by grace. And then I, I think that what brings all those beliefs together is the necessity of faith, right? So the Bible talks about faith. And I mentioned earlier how I, I think I had a wrong definition of faith. We think that faith is like this blind leap. It's not a blind leap. Faith in the Bible has to do with trust. It's, it's not enough to just believe a list of things. The Bible says the demons believe and shudder, and they're not saved, but they believe Jesus was raised from the dead. Demons believe that Jesus is God, but it's putting active trust in those beliefs. And so I like to, to think of it this way. I came from Nashville, so I had to get on a plane to get here. It's one thing for me to believe the plane will get me safely to my destination, and I have good reason to, to, to believe that. Uh, pilots are trained rigorously. There's mechanics who are experts in, in maintaining the plane. Air traffic control is gonna do their job. I have good reason to trust that the plane, it's not assurance, it's not certainty. I mean, the plane could crash, that happens from time to time, but I have good reason to trust that that plane's gonna do what it says. But I haven't put active trust in that belief until I put my body on the plane. Do you see the difference? There's a difference, and I think it's like that with Christianity. You might even be sitting there going, yeah, I believe all those things, but have you put trust in Jesus as your savior? And I think that that would be the main key in the difference. Yeah, I like to, I like to think of it, too, as um, not putting trust in yourself. Because yeah. that's what people that don't understand the gospel or haven't grasped, grasped it, they think of, of salvation as something that they're going to do because they're moral, because they come to church, and because they're good. And they sort of picture um, when they die, appearing before God, and there's like a quiz, you know. How good were you on the earth, you know? How, uh, how well did you treat people? And you're like, I was really good, and I treated people well, and I went to Spring Hills Church, and I, you know, uh, I did all these things. And so what they're trusting in is what? What are they trusting in? They're trusting in their resume. They're trusting in what they did. So moralism. They, they view Christianity as moralistic and heaven as a reward for good people. Are you with me? Christianity, that's not Christianity. That's religion. All the other religions are like that. Christianity is different. I mean, Christianity is, I no longer trust in me. I trust in Jesus died for me. I trust in the cross. I trust in grace, mercy, and I want it. I want it. Um, the progressives don't like the blood of Jesus. We've talked about that. Uh, and you, when you listen to a preacher who's more of a progressive preacher, um, they never talk about the blood. You don't hear it. The songs aren't about the blood. The, the sermons are more about your potential and fulfilling your God-given dreams and your destiny and about how to improve your life. That's what it's about. It's not about the blood. Talk about the blood of Christ. Another easy one for you. Yeah. This, this, <laughs> this service, this is the edgy service. Uh, so, yeah. Christianity is different. You mentioned it's different from other religions in a lot of ways. And one of the ways it's different is that in Christianity, it, it, it really stands or falls based on the resurrection. And that's tied in with Jesus' death. Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain and you're still in your sins. So Paul's actually saying, like, if you could prove that Jesus wasn't resurrected, then 
you could just, like, we might as well just pack it in and go do something else. Uh, but that's deeply tied into the work he did on the cross because the resurrection, in a way, was God's way of vindicating Jesus. Because when Jesus was crucified, uh, you know, Roman crucifixion was a very shameful way to die. I think in modern terms, we think of the cross as the symbol of victory. We think of it, it we, we put gold crosses on our necks, and nothing wrong with that. I have one too, but we think of it that way. But in the first century context, crucifixion wasn't just the most excruciating way to die, but it was also the most shameful way to die. They didn't crucify Roman citizens. Crucifixion was saved for uh, slaves and traitors, enemies of the state, those types of people, people who they wanted to publicly humiliate. And so the cross was, it was mind-blowingly odd for Jesus' followers to, to witness him die on the cross. And it was a shame, it, there was shame associated with it. And I think in modern context, we look back at the, at, at the idea that, I mean, when I see the cross, I see Jesus' blood shed for me to cleanse me of my sins. And if you've never heard something like that before in this age, that can sound so odd, but it's not any weirder today than it was in the first century. Jesus said to his followers, you're going to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they were like, this guy's crazy. And a lot of people walked away from Jesus that day. Uh, but he said to Peter, are you going to walk away too? And Peter says, where else can I go? You have the words of eternal life. And so I think that it's, it's pictures like that. We know, we have predictive uh, texts in the Bible that tell us the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. They think it's stupid. Progressive Christians think it's just a copy of pagan religions. It's foolishness to them. But to those who are being saved, it's eternal life. And it's always been that way, and it's always going to be that way. And, mm. and that's what I think about. It's everything, yeah. And really, everything we've talked about in terms of Christianity has come from the scriptures, right? I mean, we're not like sitting up here just sharing ideas, right. which you would have in a more progressive type church that's trying to deconstruct. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about the revealed word of God in the scriptures, which we hold to being the word of God. And we're, everything we've talked about, the crucifixion, the blood of Christ, the resurrection comes right out of the teaching of the apostles in the New Testament and the prophets in the old. Um, so... Uh, Spring Hills Community Church, let it be known, uh, is holding to the historic Christian faith as given to us in the Holy Scriptures by the apostles and prophets. And what we believe is what is here. And what I want to preach and teach is what is here. You're not coming for, you, for uh, anything else other than that. Okay? So, and what, I, what we want... What we want for you in Grow in Faith, which is this series, is for you um, to own it yourself by understanding the scriptures um, and to uh, really dig in, as, you know, Alisa did, to come to that place of assurance in her faith for you to do that as well. 